out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Canadian rock band. It is the one and only Martha and the Muffins. Because I recently spoke to Martha Johnson and also Mark Game to find out more about life, love and poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. Um, Just to say that they are both together, probably at the kitchen table. So quality-wise, sound this is is good. And um, you'll obviously know the difference between Mark and Martha, which is always a good thing. And um, yeah, this is it. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and that musical moment that could just change anything. Anyway, Martha, tell us everything. Tell us now. For me, it was uh, definitely the Beatles. I mean, I was a young girl in school. And uh, they just uh, swept me off my feet the way they did with everybody else, especially females. And, um, you know, reaching that age of of puberty and everything, I think it was just an awakening on on many levels. And I saw them three times live here in Toronto. Wow. So I managed to see them live. It was really very moving and I was in love with them. Yes. Well, seeing them live is is obviously going to um, to be quite a deal breaker. And were your were your parents at all kind of? Did they were they at all artistic or creative or musical? Did they give you any help or direction in life? Well, my grandmother was a piano teacher, and uh, that side of my family is quite musical. I, I have an aunt who studied opera, and um, you know, it was always there was always music in our house. You know the ballets, a lot of classical music, Latin, bossa novas, and things like that. We would get up and dance in the living room, that sort of thing. So music was a big part of our house. Yes, absolutely. That's that's quite cool, actually. And um, and what and, and and Mark, what about yourself? What was your sort of musical awakening that sort of happened? Well, that that does put us into the baby boomer slot, doesn't it? Because I would have to say. It was the Beatles as well. And, you know, there, there was that legendary night, I think, February 1963, no, three, maybe, well, on the Ed Sullivan Show, which, you know, back in the day, uh, there were probably only four or three shows on Sunday nights. And Ed Sullivan, which was this variety show, yeah. Ed Sullivan, uh, who was responsible probably as much as anybody for bringing the British invasion to North America, and that February night, literally everybody in North America that was a certain age was watching that show and waiting for the Beatles to come on. And I remember uh, my grandmother was there. And of course, we were totally excited. And the whole time she was going, look at their hair. Look at their hair. <laughs> uh, so, you know, she she had probably a different view of the whole thing. Um but yeah, it would have been the Beatles, I think. And also, I guess I was about nine or 10 when that happened. Um, before that, I think the first single I ever owned was Cast Away by Haley Mills, <laughs> who I immediately fell in love with. Um, uh, but that, but the Beatles were, you know, where you woke up and you went, this is incredible, you know. And I, along with Martha and a million gazillion other kids in North America, uh, that was it for us. 
Yes. And what and you were obviously both experienced much more the 60s than a lot of people who I've interviewed who was sort of probably sort of getting to that age in the 80s. So what was it like when you got to sort of 15, 16? Did you because this is like probably the mid 60s towards the the middle or the, the, the sort of latter part of the 60s. Yeah. So you would have sort of experienced and been aware of that kind of changing kind of moment from the Ed Sullivan show which was all very black and white to sort of the change of outfits and the change of sound and styles and that kind of cultural revolution. So what was it like sort of seeing that firsthand? What did a hippie think? Well, yeah, I, I guess, Hippies. you know, the thing that probably makes us seem like grumpy old white people is that we're going to say, you know, that was incredible growing up at that time because um, there was such a, and when I mean grumpy old white people, it's like baby boomers going, oh, that was the best era of music ever. And of course, you know, that, that's highly subjective and I don't necessarily believe that. But on the other hand, there, were, there was a big disjuncture between our parents' era of music and ours. So, you know, our parents would have listened to the, you know, they were into the big band era uh, and all that, which was a phenomenal era as well. But when the 60s hit, there was nothing. It just was a clean break and everything seemed new. You know, when you and everything and it was such a variety of it. I mean, you had the Beatles, you had the Stones, the Who, the whole British invasion. You had Motown, you had James Brown, you had, uh, you know, the California scene like Jefferson Airplane. You the had Mamas Jimmy, the Mamas and Papas. Yes. I saw them live. You saw them. You saw everybody. <laughs> uh, not Jimi Hendrix, so your no, sister saw him. But, you know, and I remember, I think in grade 10, you know, being around 16, 17, going to see Monterey Pop at the local uh, theater cinema. And, uh, you know, it was just mind blowing to see Hendrix, you know, burning his guitar and, and the sounds that were coming out of that Stratocaster. And I think, since then, you know, rock music has uh, diverged into a million different genres, and then there's hip hop and everything. But I think it was just absolutely shocking, in a wonderful way, to be that age, and and it was just so much different and great stuff. You know, it yes. was really amazing. It was, there was a club, was. In Toronto, club in Toronto called the Rock Pile, and I still have my members' card, and it, we. A lot of bands played there. Yeah. Like Led Zeppelin, yeah. Yes, I know. You'll make everyone very envious on this one, won't you? So I suppose the thing is you saw the source of what became the, you know, the the kind of the beginning of what we look at as rock and pop, basically, which everybody sort of eventually goes back to who plays a guitar or takes drums or or whatever. So when you got 16 or 18, did you leave school at that stage or did you both, I mean, you didn't know each other at that stage, I'm guessing. This is a good no, guess. No. Oh, phew. So did you both stay on at sixth form and then go to university or did you leave at that stage? I I first got a job and um, worked and uh, I I actually got married when I was 21. So but uh, but I had I went to community college and, and a year of university. I never right. knew what I wanted to do with my life, but I hadn't picked a, a profession or taught. There was no calling or anything, I, but I always wanted to be on stage when I was younger. So, uh, but when I finally did get on stage, I was terrified at first. Yes, this does happen. But, uh, this... Yeah, but, um, um, you know, I, I, 
we didn't actually meet until I'm like I was in my mid twenties when the band started. So uh, yeah, um, there's yeah. a lot of bands like U2 or something. They start when they're in their late teens, right out of the school. Well, kids, I think at least uh, maybe earlier on, maybe this is still the case in the UK. Um, there was a sense that you got streamed way earlier like the, i remember the first time i went to the uk and i was hitchhiking around you know so there were lots of conversations and it seemed that you were very early on i think you know the a levels or the old levels i can't but you'd be 11 and you'd be pigeonholed they go oh he's you know he's going to art college right yes <laughs> and you know this person's going to go on to university so we were you know we left school later you know we both graduated high school which um We'd be about mm -hmm. 17, 18. Then you went to art college. Then I went to art college for five years, and at which point, during which point, the band formed and we met each other because there were mutual people that we knew. Yeah. yeah. It was in 1977. 19, did you say 1977? Yeah. That's when because, it did you, because you would have been at that age, though, where you would have been conscious of that the end of the 60s. Like, 67, you know, was the Summer of Love, Monterey Pop Festival, you know, the Beatles, everything was going totally brilliantly. Even the LSD was probably fantastic and everyone was having a great trip. But then two years later, you know, it all kind of go, the party starts to sour somewhat, but, you know, with the death of Brian Jones. And then you had Hendrix, Morrison, Joplin, you had Altamont, you know, Charles Manson. And then, um, yes, it, it you know, the... I'm not sure if I mentioned Altamont, but you know there was that experience, and and so you you know what was it like? Because you would have been at that age where you must have went right. I'm ready for the world. This is magic. Oh dear, it's all gone a bit wrong. Um, so what did you sort of pick up on that cultural kind of shift of a a new decade with quite a lot of death from sort of such iconic artists? Yeah, yeah. Well, drugs were really a big thing back then. They were like. Uh, part of the culture and and you know if you didn't do do, do drugs you were considered an outcast and i had a lot of um i had a bad, bad situation with with drugs with lsd actually and uh it sort of messed me up for quite a while so i did i just walked away from drugs completely and alcohol and everything i wasn't heavily into it but i had a bad experience and and it changed changed the way i i looked at the world and do you think that yes. reflects the general cultural thing, because yeah, that was I mean, like a personal thing. It was but... like the way people people could uh, jump up on stage and not not have a, any uh, prowess at an instrument or anything, or singing, and and uh, people were just taking drugs without doing, with knowing what was in it. You know, people friends were some friends were dying, or you could hear about somebody who was nineteen and walked walked out into the lake and thought he could walk on the water and stuff. You know. All sorts of tragedies were happening that way, and and all those yes. you mentioned were um, most of them were, were only twenty seven years old. It seemed to be the number that it came up with everybody. Yeah, but yes. all of them, it was you know, and especially for me, Hendrix, it was just you know, I remember my one of my friends at high school coming in and going, "Did you hear?" I went, "No, what?" You know, and I just couldn't believe it, right? That it, and and as Martha says, most of them for some weird reason. Were twenty seven, and but and and for the most part, all of them were brilliant. But you, and then you know, you you slid into the seventies, and at least over here, and in my experience anyway, you started to have to work 
really hard to find bands that were actually interesting because mm. it kind of it kind of got you know for me anyway it kind of got watered down like the the excitement and experimentation of the early the first wave of rock music started de- devolving in my mind into the eagles and you know steely dan and stuff where all of a sudden it was kind of easy listening rock and you know, I, I was a huge King Crimson fan and still am. And so that was my band in high school. Um, the darkness of it suited my melancholy uh, frame of mind through most of high school. And and then, of course, a bit later, there was Roxy Music and and Eno. And, and, but they were kind of, they were probably way bigger in the UK. And they, they, they got notice over here, but more on a large cult level, at least to a certain point. But if you, you know, if you looked, if you listened harder and looked further, you could find bands like that. But I don't think they were the ones that were getting played on radio most of the time, you know? No, God, I had, no. I had a friend who, um, who, who was sort of our, our guru for, for music and he, he got all the paper, all, all the English papers, the NME and sounds, all of them, and he was really up on who who was hot and who was in the charts and everything, and all the new bands. And he he just guided me through all the all the various uh, music that you could, could be exposed to. Yeah, and he he turned it out to be uh, probably the central figure in the early uh, punk new wave scene in Toronto. He was in a band called the Dishes. <clears throat> Did you? Say what his name was. Oh, Stephen Davey. Yeah, Stephen Davey. I mean, nobody's ever heard of him, but uh, he kind of was a pivotal, pivotal figure. And Martha was lucky to have him in high school to, um, you know, yeah, introduce. Know. Yeah, you. and I started playing with my friends on week. We'd have weekend bands, and like we had this band called Marzipan. Excellent. And it was so fun. It was just for fun. We'd write songs, and our one of the people, actually, actually, our bass player from Martha and the Muffins, had a, a a family family recording business. They had tape recorders and all kinds of equipment, so we were able to record some of that stuff. Yes. So you found your voice. And did I you, did. And was um and was that quite an interesting process? Yeah, it was, you know, the first song I wrote was called "Baby, Please Come Home." <laughs> it was. Uh, <laughs> Very simple, very nothing to it, but at least I got my my, my energies energies started, and um, I I got to uh, see what I was like as a performer. And um, you know, we only played for for friends, that sort of thing. But it was so much fun, and I knew I loved to do it. And, yes. uh it, it was Stephen that convinced you to buy the Ace Tone yeah. organ, which became central to the early Martha and the Muffins sound. It, it, it was kind of like a Farfisa, but Ace Tone was the precursor to Roland musical instruments. So Ace Tone was like early to mid 60s and then it became Roland. But so Stephen convinced you to buy this yeah. bright red, you know, combo organ. I think it was $500 too. That's a lot of money back then. Yeah. yeah wow, geez, but, that's quite an investment. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I still got it. <laughs> yeah, we still have it. <laughs> you can hear it on FM. Yeah, the, the, yeah, it's all over the first two Martha and Muffins albums. Yes. So when 77 kind of came around, obviously 
you know, it, probably everyone says this, because obviously we we also, you were talking about singer-songwriters. There were people like Joni Mitchell and and Neil Young, who were both <coughs> Canadian, and then Hart as well. Did those, and that's a bit of a sweeping statement, isn't it? Did you like those bands? Were they, did they come into your consciousness at all, those those kind of classic kind of Canadian rock bands or singer-songwriters? Not really. I think I, think I recognised that they were, uh, Joni Mitchell wrote good songs, but... You know, every girl in school had had the hairdo, you know, the straight hair, part in the middle or whatever, and they all played acoustic acoustic guitar and and um, and uh, listened to Joni Mitchell, learned her songs. So I I never went there. Yes, I they, I, I, bet, I wanted to be different. I wanted to be do do something different from that. Yes. So was I it? Mean, no, sorry, after you. Oh, I was just, I was just going to say that <clears throat> those people are giants and particularly Joni Mitchell. I mean, I, I don't think Joni Mitchell even now gets half the credit she could, or she rather that sure. she deserves. Um, but at the time, you know, uh, what everybody in art college and, and other sort of edgy places were listening to were not folk singers or classic rockers. You know, they were, <clears throat> for the most part, I mean, the interesting thing about Toronto was that it was halfway between London and New York. I mean, not necessarily in distance, but in cultural influence. So as Martha said, you know, she was reading the NME and sounds and uh, in art college, we always made a annual trip by bus down to New York and you'd be picking up all the avant-garde art activities that were going on there, plus the whole uh, punk stuff and the early post-punk new wave bands and you come back with all these influences and that's what we were really interested in and and in that sense Canada just seemed like apart from these sort of underground scenes in Toronto and maybe Vancouver and possibly Montreal to some extent uh, the rest of it just seemed like a backwater like it was moribund you know just all these bands still rocking out in a way that was now beginning to seem quite old and stale and yes. uh so everybody was cutting their hair short and wearing skinny pants and ties and we shared a rehearsal space in our very early days with this canadian rock band i can't even remember what they were called they, they were still into the long you know long hair and everything and uh it was like two worlds you know two different planets meeting they'd be leaving after practicing and we'd be coming in and we'd be kind of be looking at each other like we were different species. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I would say that, you know, probably for both of us, Canadian music has had probably very little to do with our our interests. I, I always thought the most, in, if you look at the history of pop music from the UK, from the early 60s on, I mean, it's astounding the number of amazing and uh, original and unique artists and the variety of those artists. They're just, you know, you, you probably can think of a million people right now. Um, and compared to what was going on here, yeah, you know, like uh, Neil Young is still has done great stuff. But, but I, again, going back to that time, none of it seemed as exciting as what was coming from New York and London. Yes. No, I guess, I mean, I think that was the the hippie generation really embraced them, whereas I think the first time anybody heard the Dam or the Ramones or the Clash or the Sex Pistols, 
or the buzzcocks you know it was it was it was quite a different you know if, if you're 16 18 and you're feeling very sort of fed up and bored as you do you know that's going to be the music that you love because the energy is so high so when so you you formed in 77 the royal silver jubilee and then did you feel like you were on a kind of a mission at this stage was did it feel like the kind of components of the band came together quite neatly and um you felt like quite a tight unit at this stage well, we were all from similar backgrounds, but we had very different tastes in music, and it, and they just fit fit together, like you say, really well. Um, Complemented each other nicely, and uh, there was never any arguments or big discussions about the direction we were going to take. It just it seemed to flow, and and you would think think with people, you know, our bass player was into like organ music. Jimmy, somebody or other, but like corny organ music, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and he wore three piece suits on stage. And uh, and a, and a sax player was into uh, the avant garde, yeah, improvised, improvised, improv, yeah. and free form and stuff. And so that that was sort of the the drummer, Mark's brother, like the like the brush. Oh, god, don't even say that. All these influences came together and it gave us a unique sound, I, I think. And you're yes. right, David. Like it did. It did. Like we. I. I don't think we thought about it too much. You know, we just kind of did it. And you know, somebody would bring a song in, and for my part, I did have certain arrangements that I wanted to hear sometimes. But if not, if that wasn't the case, people would just think of their own parts. And the big challenge for people that weren't trained musicians, or most of us weren't. Um, the, the big challenge was getting from the beginning to the end of the song without making a mistake, or it certainly was for me anyway, because I, you know, I thought, yeah, if I could only get to the second verse, you know, maybe I, I won't hit that wrong chord again. But, um, it's and we, we practiced a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we practiced. Very lot. diligent. Yeah, very diligent. Yes. Well, I, I yes, they, um, it's like that, Ma is it Malcolm Gladwell talking about the sort of, I don't know, 10,000 hours that the Beatles put him <clears throat> before they sort of yeah. did Sergeant Pepper, you know what? And he sort of calculated all the time they played in Hamburg and all those kind of venues around the UK and America <laughs> and thought, yes, that would be it. So I think practice does eventually work somewhere down the line. But your your sort of ability to go from that kind of first single, which was called Insect Love, to then getting this kind of interest and traveling to the UK seems to be an amazing jump, doesn't it? Of Of kind of things moving incredibly fast for the band. Were you quite surprised by what was happening with, with the sort of outfit? Because we'd had sort of the punk period, and as you've realised, probably quite, you know, from being in, in that kind of in world, um, things change so quickly. So punk is great, and then 18 months later, you think, oh, this is a bit awful. Then you get the post-punk scene, and then you get other different types. So by sort of 78... 79 you know there's definitely a change in in sort of musical styles again isn't there so yes you bring out the single and then you get sort of whisked over to america um to the uk so it's um things have moved for the band you know you're progressing quickly aren't you well we were swept up um in a series of events and i don't know if you know this story but our sax player at the time andy haas sent uh a cassette tape of um, a demo we had made down to Glenn O'Brien at Andy Warhol's uh, interview magazine in New York. And I don't remember him saying he was going to do it. He might have said that, but I, but 
in any case, Glenn O'Brien uh, sent a postcard back, and I still have it. And um, he said, love, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, love the band. Um, what can I do to help? And by the way, Robert Fripp likes it too. And it so happened that when he was playing it, I think he was hanging out with Robert, who was living in New York at the time. And he had a connection with Dave Fudger, who was a uh, virgin A&R guy who was there at the time, too. So Glenn arranged our first gig ever outside of Toronto uh, in New York at Hurrah. And we played. Um, it was very bright because Fripp was there. And he at that time, he had his little jacket on and tiny tie. And he stood like this with a kind of a grimace on his face, 20 feet off the stage. And of course, this was my childhood hero. And it was extremely intimidating to have him. Uh, yes. I, I mean, I was great. It was great that he was there nerve wracking too, you know, because this is one of your, one of my heroes and he's there, you know, scrutinizing the band. But from that led the deal with Virgin Records, like it, it literally happened. It feels like you know a few months. A few months you know, we uh, they came over again. People came over uh, again to Toronto and see us play, and then we got offered a recording contract. And then before we knew it, we were recording at the Manor Studios outside of Oxford, uh, doing the first album. Yes. I mean, that's quite bonkers because it must have cost a fortune to ship the band around at this stage and put you in a studio in the UK. Yeah, and it all went on our bill. Yeah, we paid for it. <laughs> yeah, we paid for we it. We paid it all off eventually. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that we knew we were paying for it at the time, but... Yeah, you, no, it, you don't understand those contracts yeah. when you're, you're excited and young. Um, yes. But as you say, David, it was bonkers. I think we all felt it was bonkers. And, you know, at, at times it was, uh, I mean, it was exhilarating and overwhelming at the same time because... We were basically plucked out of this little scene in downtown Toronto that literally occupied about four blocks. We'd only done about a handful of, of shows. Yeah, we hadn't played that much. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're doing these gigs at, you know, really like famous venues in London and, and the press was coming out. And uh, it was quite astounding to be experiencing that. So when you went to record the first album, had you had you got all the material ready and rehearsed and sort of all nicely shaped and um, you knew what you were doing? I was just thinking, you know, people like Black Sabbath who went into the studio and just did it in one afternoon because it's like, well, we've been playing this material for years now. We don't need to mess around. Or did, or were you under a bit of pressure to sort of get, get enough material together for that first release? I think we had enough material. We did. For we the had, first album, it was the second album. We didn't have enough material. No, we actually had probably an album and a half's worth of stuff. And we did it pretty much the way we did it live. Yeah, it was a very with much some textures added. Uh, a few things, but um, the producer uh, Mike Hallett rehearsed us uh, a lot before we went. We went into the studio, and even though we'd been playing most of these songs for. Uh, a year and a half to two years uh, we did rehearse a lot so I think we were pretty ready when we recorded yeah, the um, thing that was hard was that they take uh, a whole day to get the, the, the snare sound or the kick drum sound it was just so much waiting around you know, the energy of, of a song wasn't 
we didn't, didn't think was being captured because we just sat around ate bonbons or something. Yes. Oh, the drummer. The dear old drummer. The drummer takes all, all, all so much time. Does Oh, it's your brother, isn't it, Tim? So, um, That's yes. right. No pressure. And he had, you know, drummers, drummers have, you know, in some cases, many drums. So, you know, back in then, too, you know, it was all very meticulous. And, yeah. you know, the, here's the so, snare and there's the kick and there's a the hi-hat. And uh, maybe it didn't go on as long as we remember it, but it sure felt that it wasn't way. wasn't very glamorous at all. Um, well, I do well, remember. I remember, I don't know if you you watched the, it was the comic strip. They did the young ones, but there was one called Bad News. And I remember when they did more Bad News and there was a bit about, I think his name was Spider, the drummer. And um the rest of the band were going, why does it take all day to set this up? You know, and um, yes, it's it's the classic. Good question. <laughs> I hit a button. Yeah, now you just hit a button. <laughs> and then you think, well, that's a lot easier, isn't it? So look, I know this is going to be really tedious, but can you remember where you wrote Echo Beach? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, very much. Because, you know, as you can imagine, that question has been asked. <laughs> oh, now it's okay you can ask it you know oh, I, it's God, I know. It's no 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 it's it's, it's completely <laughs> natural to want to know but, so in 1975 between uh after my first year of art college i got a summer job at a wallpaper factory and uh, my job what there were these huge two-story presses with these enormous rolls of paper that the wallpaper patterns were printed on. And they'd be whirring away and then periodically something would go wrong, the whole thing would grind to a halt and they would reel off the damaged parts of the paper in big sort of smaller rolls. And then they'd wheel them over to me at this long table and I had a hand crank and I would separate uh, the stuff that was still good on those damage rolls from the damaged stuff. And that's what I did all summer. And um, even though I didn't write the song at that time, when I was writing this song a few years later, I looked back and go and thought about uh, the job allowed me to let my mind wander. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's brain, it's not rocket science doing that kind of thing. So I'd be thinking about where I'd rather be. And, you know, I kind of rather be anywhere but there. Uh, and so that formed the general gist of the song in the first verse. And then the second verse kind of came together lyrically uh, a few years later when I was riding around on the back of my friend's motorcycle. We stopped on the shores of Lake Ontario and I was looking back and it was this kind of atmospheric summer night. And that's where most of the second verse came from. And the Echo Beach is just a... Place, place in your mind. Really. Yeah, it's a, it was a fictional place, and of course, subsequently, people all over the world said, "Oh, well, that you got to mean the one in Australia, or the one in Northern Ontario, or the one here or there." And it, I just came up with the name. Um, Many things have been named Echo Beach. Subs since yeah, then. since then, yeah, crazy. Yes, but well, it's, it's interesting. I remember uh, there was a guy called Tim Scott McConnell. McConnell who was in various bands. Anyway, he did a song called High Hopes that Bruce Springsteen covers decades later and does an album, which is also called High Hopes. And I, I did an interview with him and he said, well, that was when, after being in a band, you know, and then having to get, a, you know, a job to get money, he was cleaning windows sort of on a high rise and would sort of tie himself by a rope and hang over the edge. And, and he was thinking, you know, I've got high, he'd be singing this as he was dangling over the edge of a high rise building 
And that's the that was how the the song High Hopes came about because of a similar experience, really, isn't it? Sort of thinking that's a great story. I've that. got <laughs> I've got high hopes, you know, hidden sort of dangling <laughs> over the edge, kind of cleaning this high rise, you know, these windows. And um, so there you go. Yeah, so that's where inspiration comes from, sort of the mon mundanity of of a, of a bad day job, really, isn't it? So, um, but there you well, go. And I, yeah, and I should finish off by saying. I couldn't say my job is very boring. I'm a wallpaper uh, inspection clerk or something. You know, that wasn't gonna, that wasn't going to uh, really work. So I tried to think of what was a universal occupation. And I actually had been a clerk. You had been an office clerk, yeah. Whereas I never. But had I didn't been. write the song. <laughs> but you didn't write the song. You sang it though. I sang it. Yeah. You sang it. So when you when you went and recorded it, did you think? You know, as they said in that uh, little bit of um, the trogs, you know, what, did you feel like, God, oh, this is this is definitely we've put some fairy dust on this. This is going to be a big hit. Did it feel like, yeah, this is the one? Um, I don't think it really, really. It was, it's complete shock that it went up to top ten chart of, of the charts. I think it, it was kind of surprise all around. And but people, people always liked the song. Yeah. We played it live. You know, they they did react really well. But yes. um, you can't predict that kind of success. But but even in the early days, you can't write another song with the same either. Well, you shouldn't. I don't think you know. You have to be true to yourself as an artist. But but even in the very early days, when we were playing at this place called the Beverly Tavern on Queen Street West in Toronto, which was sort of one of the center points of this whole little scene, and it was the Art College watering hole. We have a live recording of us playing, you know, 1978 maybe, and I'd just broken a string and we were going to do Echo Beach as an encore. And even back then, people are screaming for it. And I'm trying to, like, I'm going, oh, my God, I've broken a string. And I'm trying to, like, put the string on. And I finally go, well, I guess it's kind of in tune. And we launch into it, and the guitar riff is so out of tune. It's crazy. But... It didn't seem to matter, you know. So even back then, <laughs> they're all drunk. <laughs> uh, even back then, it seemed to have some sort of cachet. Yeah. Uh, yes. But I think in the studio, I mean, maybe other members of the band would have a different memory. Maybe I think uh, the record company recognized. Yeah, it. definitely they they saw. They it. put it out as a second single. They mm -hmm. introduced us with Insect Love. Yes. 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 And then suddenly I was on the school bus at sixteen, having that sort of constantly on the on the radio, which was like. It's it's we a memorable so track. They got played yeah, all the time. You know that's yeah. the, that was the beauty of that period when the song was in the charts. It would travel slowly up, you know, from something yeah. like forty or thirty to twenty, you know, top ten, five. You know, so it was this kind of whole, you know, like you could see the story of a band and a single. It, mm -hmm. it was there. It was you know in our consciousness for several months, but it became this classic. And a bit like I suppose the Suzanne Vega story, where she'd been playing music. They put out an album. They think, well, we might sell twenty thousand copies. It's like, wow, actually, this is going to be massive. They tore her to, you know, to death nearly. But um, and then it's like, great, you've been touring, you've been, we've doing really well. Actually, we sold millions. Now the second album, please, quick, quick, you know. So what was it like with that kind of? Oh my God, you want a second album? That one's successful. You know what? What was it like for the band at that stage? Um, you can start off because I'm just going to quickly grab some more tea. Yes. <laughs> it's just over there. I'll be right back. Well, the band was starting to fall apart at that point. And I think success does that 
flew into many bands. Yeah. For various reasons, you know, um, some thinking you were going to moving too quickly, and some thinking thinking we were not moving quickly enough. And um, the record company, the company getting involved, wanting us to do things that we did. So half the people didn't want to do, and half did want to do. All those kinds of things, and also um, Mark and uh, the other Martha had a, a, a romantic relationship going on at that in the early days. And that was starting falling apart as well. So it was a real typical rock band story. Yes, but, excellent. We've got we've got a bit of the Fleetwood Mac rumors stuck straight in. Yeah, exactly. That's that's always a good one. Because actually it was interesting about riding hits, because because I did an interview with dear old Chris Spedding um a few years ago. And he's he's written quite a lot, but he's also played on loads of songs. And he even did the Harry Nilsson one, I Can't Live if living is without you and i sort of asked him you know when he re- you know was recording or doing his guitar part he, if he thought that was going to be a big hit and he said you never know the ones that you think are going to be brilliant aren't and the ones that you think that was okay turn out to be fantastic but you do a a chris spedding song don't you motorbiking whose whose idea was that in in the band uh i think it was probably david miller who was one of the founding members and then left fairly shortly to become our sound guy but we that was um the reason we did that because in our early days we didn't have enough songs to fill out an evening so we did covers of we did motorbike in which i think david uh that was david's idea we did my world is empty without you by the supremes and we did um, uh um, the roxy music song editions of you we did editions of you by roxy music uh yeah, we take did take me to the river no we did dirty water i think no we did take me to the river Okay, I don't remember doing that. Some river song. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was dirty water. I don't remember that. Da, I sang it. Love the dirty water. It's about the Charles River in Boston. I don't think so. Okay, maybe you were on LSD. <laughs> <laughs> it was a river, but it definitely wasn't Bruce Springsteen's river. So that's that's the main thing. Yes. So was that? So was that where the band? Because actually, interestingly enough. My first single was David Bowie. My second one was Rod Stewart Salem. But my third one was Debbie Harry um, or Blondie's Denise. And then looking back, you know, she was in her 30s and then thinking, oh, yeah, that's quite interesting. Because, And then I was listening to an uh, interview with Joe, Joe Strummer from The Clash. who sort of lied about his age when he was in The Clash because he said, you know, you really should try to be 19. He was like 24. Did you feel that yeah. you were like... Oh God, you know, because we, you know, they were mostly kind of. It's a young person's game, isn't it, really? And you, you were probably a little bit older. Did that sort of influence the band at all, or have much impact? Uh, it, well, we were in, I think because we were an art, but art school band, it, it did, didn't matter that we were a little bit older. I don't think we thought much about it, and I know, as you've said before, the scene changes in changed changes very quickly in the UK or certainly did there then, you know, like a year and a half and then this is over and this is coming up. And I think for some of us anyway, like we didn't really care um, about the fame part of it because the whole reason for starting a band was just to see if you could be in a band. And we had no illusions about it ever becoming anything. I mean, I, I think that first summer of 77 you know we just thought hey everybody's forming a band let's do that you know and 
we'd grown up with Ed Sullivan and seeing the Beatles go, wow, that, that, you know, there's a certain romanticism about it. Um, but I don't think, I thought that it was going to last for two years and then we'd go back to our job, you know, part-time job. I'd go back to being a painter and having a part-time job at the uh, Art Gallery of Ontario. And that was what I was going to do. And, you know, you, you were going to go, well, you weren't going to go back to being an office clerk, I don't no. think. But, <laughs> but, you know, you didn't think it was going to last. And then we had this huge thing with Echo Beach. And in a sense, it was, it was great, but it was also like a curse because you know we've had other singles that have done well not so much in the uk but other places like canada and the states but echo beach was is by far the biggest and have that on your first album and then have a fairly disastrous second one where basically a lot of the songs that we discussed we didn't put on the first album went on to the second and there were some songs that weren't that well written newer ones that went on that album and it was very disjointed too. And we had no manager. That's the other thing. We we didn't have a manager till 1980. So we were at the complete mercy of the record company. Like there was no yeah, we had fights. There was no, you know, no man's land between the band. And, you know, there were people at the label uh that were kind of starting to play various members off each other, which only contributed to the breakup of that early band too. Like and for my part, I really didn't give a shit. Like, I thought, if this doesn't last, I don't care. Like, it's been pretty neat. But yes. we were not in it for those reasons. Like, we were not, we never, I don't think we thought of ourselves as entertainers, you know, or you had to go up there and put on a rock and good show. Like, we, I think we were really interested in the music and and as the main writers, I think, we were just trying to write some really interesting songs. And then later on through the, the Daniel Lanois co-production years, we were just trying to do interesting albums and, it, you know, yeah, it'd be cool if we had some, some singles on them, but that wasn't necessarily the driving force of it. Yes. Um, you'll, Cause was the third album a better experience? Cause then this was like Mark two almost, isn't it? With the band and you've, you've kind of had a few of a bit of a, change and well a few less members and a, and another producer this star producer so did that feel like a bit of a okay we can not start again but we can reset and and go for the next phase with the third album we definitely wanted to have a change and we wanted to uh, explore sound more exploring textures of music and not not just be pop songs i think they'd have more um more uh more guts to them you know, and more more um layers and we did a lot of things like throw a a cardboard box down the stairs of the studio and uh record it and a bicycle wheel that we just had fun with things and it was dan lanois was really into all that stuff he'd been he'd been working with uh, brian Eno, yes and he was learning a lot from us and we were learning a lot from him so it was an exciting time. We were all very, the people in the band at that point were very, very excited. But there's still the tail end of the, the old band kissing yes. away in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it really was a revelation because it was the first album that we did back in Canada. Uh, we met this woman who uh, became our bass player, Jocelyn Lanois. 
And she said, oh, I have two brothers that have the studio in Hamilton, which is about a hour's drive west of Toronto. And, you know, we were about to do our demo for the third album for Virgin. And, uh, well, we said, sure, let's try this guy out. <clears throat> and, you know, th this is before Dan was famous. This is years before Dan was famous. He was just this guy in Hamilton who, um, you know, had a, had a great local studio. He was known to be a great engineer. But, you know, he hadn't done anything that had hit internationally. So, you know, we were coming in and we'd already had Echo Beach behind us and we loved working with him because um, essentially the third album, I got to do all or many of the things uh, in the recording of the album that I've been doing at the art college because okay. I was an improviser and I was into experimental music. That's really where I started from. And and to Dan's credit, like he did not come from that background at all. He was like a roots guy. And Eno started working with him at the same time we did. And so he immediately, you know, picked up on the art college approaches to recording and totally embraced them to mm. his um, to his credit. Because before that, <clears throat> you know, Mark would bring out his weird uh synthy a keyboardless synthesizer and want to do some weird noises on a track you know for textural purposes <clears throat> and you can almost feel the producer and or the engineer going to go oh god mark wants to do this again and dan was the complete opposite he, you know you'd be giving him an idea and before he even finished he'd be up there setting the mic up to do it you know mm -hmm. And he 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 was really into it, and of course he went on to great things. Yeah. Um, and for us, that third album was just absolutely liberating because we basically were away from the record company. And even though they gave us ten thousand dollars less to work with this guy they'd never heard of, we were left to our own devices. And I remember waking up every day and just going, "This is the best." day of my life because I'm going there and I can do anything I want in a big, you know, in a good studio with this great guy. I just loved it. Um, that was an exciting time. Yes. So then the next two albums, they're really, you know, you really are experimenting a lot more now, aren't you? You've really sort of embraced mm -hmm. just, you know, your own creative journey here. Yes. And this, the, the, fourth album, which was the second that Dan and we did Dance Park, uh, I think we let out all the stops because we were pulling in, you know, found noises and stuff from my, uh, you know, field recordings and soap opera dialogue and all sorts of stuff. But also we had a really great band and, you know, we kind of, that was kind of our punk funk stage, you know, where it was... Uh, Park? Yeah, dance part, which was, yes. you know, really, but it had all these textural things. And so we, the approach was we went in as a band and did the bed track. So we got the fury of almost playing live. And then we put, put weird stuff over top of it. And I think it was a great combo, really. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, it's kind of interesting because at that point, I mean, you know, this is kind of a simplistic way of looking at the 80s, but, you know, there was that kind of post-punk period and then there was, you know, there was the goth scene and New Paisley and, you know, Psychobilly and Narco-Punk, but then it was kind of the years of the Smiths, 
I always put the Smiths in between 83 to 87, they sort of came and they they had quite a chapter in the 80s for a lot of people in the indie world. And and there was a very creative period. Did did those kind of other scenes interest you at all? Were you very much kind of on your own little trip at this stage as a band and and sort of that kind of creative intensity that you had? Um, we were on our own little trip, I think. I think we were on our own little trip, but I, when I think back, you know, to my younger self as a little kid, I realize now that I was listening to everything and without even being aware of it and not knowing what I was going to end up doing, I was storing it. And so those middle period Beatles albums where there was, you know, the whole psychedelic thing and, you know, um, McCartney's use of tape loops and even at the end of Penny, Lee, uh, Penny Lane, when you hear that sort of 60 cycle hum, which sounds like an ant hum or something. I remember yes. being a kid thinking that was the coolest fucking sound I'd ever heard. And and then I realized that, like, you know, the way certain songs were constructed, I would bring, uh, yeah, we were in our own little world, but I'm constantly referring to the formative sounds of my early and my childhood and teenage years, you know, like certain things on King Crimson albums, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. I had a friend in high school named Christopher Linke. I have no idea how he exposed himself to the music that he did. But the first time I met him, he brought over the third King Crimson album, which is Lizard, which is the weirdest one, one of the weirdest ones, because... They kind of got into jazz, rock, but in a King Crimson kind of way. He brought that and he brought Bitches Brew by Miles Davis. Mm. And that gives you an idea. But he introduced me to like, you know, serious 20th century composers like uh, uh, Penderecki and um, Steve Reich and, uh, you know, the whole um, Stockhausen. And I've, I just absorbed all that. Like I just absorbed it and I'm going... Oh, yeah. So what if we take the end of this guitar sound, but change the tape while I'm playing and it just goes down and down and down. And, you know, there's a part in a Stockhausen piece called Hymnen where um, it sounds like seagulls, but he's manipulating the tape and then it drops down into what sounds like, I think, an audience. And then it drops down and starts sounding like whales. And, you know, when you're 17 and you hear that and you're open to it. That's a mind-blowing thing, you know? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's my short answer. <laughs> there, there, no, our formative years are always, always so important. When you did your, the the kind of, I can't remember which one it is, is it your fourth one, Mystery Walk? I mean, you really expanded the lineup as well, though. You're playing with a lot of different musicians coming into the studio. Was this your, was this one of your creative high moments of the band? Well, it was our moment when we weren't wanting to do uh, live performances anymore, or not many, and uh, we were really into the studio because it had gone so well, the dance park, and, and the, uh, our rhythm section really wanted to, to go out and play, so we decided we would pare it down to just Mark and myself. And uh, it was, a, it was a, a difficult transition, actually. It was a very difficult time for everybody. but. Um, we just we focused on our our own ideas and working with Dan on that. We went to New York and um, worked at the power station, right? And had a 
the rhythm section come in, um, two rhythm sections, one from Toronto and one from New York. And they were they were great. Both, yeah, it was it was a real hard decision to make because I think the dance part band could have gone and made at least one or two re other really great records, but I think we got tired of being, uh, you know, it's kind of like being the headmaster or the school principal where you're kind of wrangling these other members, to, you know, and, and then, you know, whatever bickering that's going on and going, man, I'm getting tired of this, you know, and um, we did a big show in Toronto at a place called Ontario Place that was recorded live and we're hoping to uh, release this year because it'll be the 40th anniversary that uh, Dan recorded on a mobile. And that was the last gig of the dance park band. And after that, we said, you know, guys, I think we want to kind of pare it down and, and it'll give us an opportunity to try other avenues. And of course, Mysteries Walk is like this, has this absolutely killer funk, New York funk rhythm section on it. It was Dan's idea to um, get the Brecker brothers to play on black stations, white stations. Yes. And it, it was, um, again, it was kind of overwhelming and fabulous, but at the same time, it was kind of sad because it wasn't really a band anymore. Yeah. You know, we were hiring these really hot shit musicians and man, were they ever good, like, you know, way beyond our skill level. So, you know, here we are writing the songs and, but they were thrilled with Black Stations. Oh, yeah. No, the, and they came in and they, everything they played on, they just killed it, you know? Yeah. Um, but when, we, when it went to number two in the dance charts and everybody was playing in all the clubs, they, they were sort of going, hey, I played on that song. <laughs> yes. Amazing. I mean, it's quite good. I mean, because you, you sort of abbreviate the band at this point to Eminem, don't you? Which is um, obviously keeps it a little bit more straightforward. So when you came to do the The World is a Ball, this is kind of... 80 is this 86 now isn't it you're sort of the decade yep 86 yeah and again this is recorded between canada and bath so again quite an ambitious project to undertake well labels had you know at that time labels were throwing away money money like you know it was like yeah you'll go here you go there and dan at that point um had done I think the Birdie album with Peter Gabriel. Right. And I think, yes. and maybe, was he starting with U2 at that point or maybe a bit later? It was close. Um, but anyway. Yes. It was, it was definitely, Dan was getting into the limelight, you know, and I think probably Gabriel was testing him on Birdie to see if he wanted to work further with him, which obviously he did. And so at that point, Dan said, you know, you guys can produce your own stuff now. Um, he, uh, he said, you know, you know what you're doing. And I mean, I don't think we felt like we, I mean, on on some levels, yeah, we, we've always known what we're doing, you know, in the confidence of our songwriting and maybe the arrangements. But from a production view, we're going, well, no, Dan, we don't necessarily know. <laughs> but, you know, he had, he, you know, we'd done three albums with him, which were all great. And so we were looking for a new producer and we were listening to all these records and we heard um, the XTC album with the big locomotive wheel. What's that one called? I can't remember now. But at the end of it, there's a song called Wake Up. And it convinced us to. We, it convinced us that we should work with David Lord because, yeah, I mean, XTC is a great band. We've always loved them. 
And this song was great. It had this weird syncopated beat. And then at the very end, there's this huge choir that comes in like this giant atmospheric thing. And we thought, oh, man, this is fantastic. So we ended up working with David Lord and staying in Bath for, I don't know, like three or four months. And we were with we were being distributed by RCA at that point. And they kept phoning up from Canada to going, like, are you guys going to be done soon? Because the budget, I think that budget was a quarter of a million dollars. It was like insane. Yeah. Uh, and David, you know, David Lord kept saying, oh, you know, over here, we spent a whole month just doing a single, you know, we're going, yeah, but you know, we still have, I can't remember how many tracks are on that album, but uh, whoa, you know, uh, but it, we, it had a bit of a harsh sound to it. Though. Yeah. It, it was a bit harsh that album. I mean, it's, things on it that I really love, but overall it had a pretty um, brittle. Well, brittle And that was the early days of, or that was the days of early digital, you know, where everybody thought you couldn't have enough top end. And of course you certainly could have too much top end, but. Um, yes, Dan was a base guy. Yeah, Dan was more of a bottom end kind of guy. But, <laughs> but the. Uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> Okay, that wasn't intentional, but nevertheless. Um, but we loved Bath. You know, we, we got to know the, the city quite well uh, and ended up moving there a few years later. Um, oh, right. Yeah. So you came and relocated for a short period of time. Years. For, yeah, about two and a half years we right. lived there. And did you keep in touch with David, Lord? Yes, Um some like to some degree, not not many years now, but when we were living there, um, there was a band from L.A. called Eleven, which had they were a duo, and he phoned us up and said, um, you know, they're recording an album here. Can you look at? Can you you know take them on a tour? Can you take care of them for a while? Because uh, David didn't like to work on weekends, so we we kind of hung out with them, and they were really nice, and we took them to. Uh, uh, the Welsh border and, you know, and the around town. Yes. Uh, so we had a good time with them and we later hung out with them in LA too when we were there for a while. But, Amazing. Uh, and, so as the, as, you know, the 80s, so, as the 80s came to a finish then, did you did you sort of feel that, that you'd had enough with the band at that stage? Well, um, while we when we moved to Bath, we did what we probably call our bedroom album. Uh, which was literally recorded in our bedroom in Bath for the most part. And then when we came back to Toronto, we finished it there. But we used, um, oh, that fabulous violinist who's passed away now, a Gordon Stewart, uh, Stuart Gordon, who right. played on Tears of Tears. Um, he would, so he'd come into the bedroom and, you know, he'd be playing on one of our cuts and, you know, we'd be right like five feet from each other. And he'd give me a little wink if he thought it was going well which it was because he was such a talented player. But we did this bedroom album. It took, I don't know, five years. It, it, we, we did because at that point we didn't really have a label anymore. Yeah. And so we just went, yeah, we'll do what we want. We came back, we signed with a little indie label called Intrepid, which went bankrupt the minute we released the album. <laughs> so it went into a black hole and then we didn't do another album for 18 years. So that was modern lullaby. 
Yeah. Yes. The one we did in our bedroom. Yeah, but that's the bedroom album. The bedroom album. So then, God, that was because most bands, you know, I've done, they have the five year narrative. So you did really well. They have the, you know, the 12 month, 12 month honeymoon period, you know, rehearsing. They get a single, John Peel plays it. They get a John Peel session, which is good. The first album, things are good. They get their little transit van around the UK, do all the little indie nights and alternative nights. Second album, a bit tricky. Third album, it's all over. So you, you know, actually, you you did have a good run at this, didn't you? You went in for 13 years, virtually 15 years of the band. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, you know, obviously with any band that's been around a long time, there's a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, I think during the 90s, well, we had a, a daughter. So we basically um, spent... I was going to say I did a children's album. Yeah, you should talk about Yes. That. So you brought out another, your your children's album, didn't you, as well? It was very successful. It won the equivalent of a Grammy here, a Juno Award best children's album and it was great we had a great time recording it it yeah. was so much fun because again pressure was off uh well the pressure was off there was no deadline but also again we went back to our um you know field recordings and weird sounds like one rhythm track was done on a dock at night in a on a wow. farmer's pond and you can hear all the crickets and we're playing this rhythm with mallets on the dock, which sort of became a giant marimba. And we were doing all sorts of stuff like that, you know, and for quite a few years, you made a living doing that, which helped us get through the 90s because we did film and television stuff as well. But basically, even in Canada, we weren't considered cool anymore. Uh, you know, and we basically with Modern Lullaby, we did three videos and none of them got onto the Canadian video, the national video station. Like they just, we, you know, we weren't. Uh, we rolled hats. We, yeah, we rolled hats. We weren't Canada's favorite, you know, band anymore. And, and you know. That's, that's the business. That's the business. And in Canada, and I think this is true even now, is if you get attention from somewhere else, then you get attention in Canada. Right. So, well, when well, we... so, so, so what I've noticed is the bands who from possibly the 80s, but those 90s bands who were like Britpop, you know, I think they just couldn't get arrested for like 10, 15 years. And then they've kind of started coming back and they put these little festivals on reload or rewind or something festivals. And suddenly there's a kind of an audience for them. And I think the original audience kind of moves away and says, look, sorry, you know, I loved you for five years but I've got other things to do and then 20 years later they have time to sort of go out you know go to the gigs again they've kind of done the career not the career but they've done a job they've done the house they've got some kids but they've got a bit more space so so in a way 20 30 years is often at this period of time that that sometimes a band comes back again and says is anybody interested and it's like yeah we're, we're interested but if they did that five years after breaking up it was like I don't think they would have got 50 people in the room but now they can go to these little festivals or little kind of gigs that um, people seem to be very happy but there is a there was quite a few decades that you have to go through, isn't there? And now, now it's 40 years that they've waited. And if you yes. go to a concert, like Roxy Music or something like that, or Talking Heads or whatever, um, yes. it's a sea of heads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both one and all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is true. This is true. So, yes. 
So you you have you found then with all your reissues and various bits of repackaging, people have started to become more interested in the band as well. Well, the the internet saved us because basically there was a period, you know, the, before the internet really became a vehicle where you could reconnect with your fans. Before that, we were, you know, the, the labels were completely uninterested in reissuing anything. And basically, a lot of the albums you've mentioned, we basically uh, fought to get at least reissue rights and yeah. did it on money and did it because we knew, well, first of all, we knew that we would disappear forever if we didn't keep the catalog alive. And we assumed that there would be people that heard that stuff uh, the first time around might want to get a CD or or a, a download of you know that music, and yeah. there might be people. So that that was the motivation. And um, then we you know we when we got an internet presence, we started. It, the thing that was great about that is it connected with our fans directly. That like literally, there's uh, no gatekeepers. You know, you can talk to people. And when we did reissues, we did crowdfunding and some of it was like well we'll talk to you for an hour you know and you'd be talking the way we're talking to you now and i love that like i love the interaction with what we like to call our listeners because some some of them are fans yeah some of listeners and the listeners know all the albums and the you know what we would now call obscure tracks (laughs) and um and the b-sides and and others just like Echo Beach, which is all fine too, you know. Yes, and absolutely. So you've you've been very active, though. We, you know, kind of after the you know you did your solo work and kept things going, but then recently it seems like there's been a lot, lot more activity with the band, bringing bits and pieces out and repackaging stuff and sort of the anniversary type. So is that been something that you've enjoyed doing? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, we put the album out called, called Marthology. That's and is the, that's the the obscure the B sides, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like um, outtakes. It's unreleased or limited released or obscure B sides. In an outtakes. Yeah, and, you know, just that stuff. And that was our manager's idea, and he'd been bugging us for years, and I'm really glad. We got it out because as we were going through all of our archival material, we were going, hey, this song's really good. And like, there's, you know, I'm thinking of uh, talking through my hat. And like, I've always loved your vocals on that. I think they were some of the best vocals you ever did. And, you know, finally we we got these out because they were never released and some of them were considered demos. Oh, yes. And some new things are popping up. Like, we're doing a thing called Dazzlefield. It's a, working with um female singer songwriters who about doing breakup songs they have to have broken up or can write a really good song about breaking out of breaking up um that's going well it's recorded so there's so it's good to keep doing interesting things Yes, well, I've noticed that there's been quite a lot of releases and a, and a live album as well from probably 40 years ago, 40 plus years that has kind of come out That's as well funny. recently. So during the lockdown period, did you did you take a period to kind of reevaluate your the kind of archive and think about what you were going to be doing next for the rest of this decade? Well, 
what I did. Um, yes, yes, we did. And I started, uh, I've never put out a solo album. Uh, Martha's done the, uh, songs from the Treehouse, which is a kid's um, album. And she also did solo one a few years ago, which was, but I've never put out anything myself. And about 20 some odd years ago, I started a project um, Ba uh, instrumental project based on common plant names and then I shelved it and during last year which I guess was the middle year of COVID I went if I don't finish this it'll never be it'll never be complete and I I thought this is a good excuse because it's locked down and everybody's in their house and nobody's going anywhere so I spent last year finishing it I've just finished it um, and it will be out soon i hope um i'm just working on the cover art and trying to figure out if i'd like to hire a uk pr person because trying to get attention these days like there's so many releases yes and you know you try and get like hold of the guardian reviewers and like you hit a brick wall unless somebody knows how to get through it right and <laughs> but it's a very i don't know what kind of it's a very challenging album like uh, you know we we have run it by a few uh, media people and they went it's definitely uh not an easy listen <laughs> right <laughs> I, I take that as a great compliment actually but um we'll did see you, did you enjoy setting up your own record label muffin was that something that you felt quite excited by well it it, it came as a necessity i think because when we decided we had to start reissuing some of the back catalog. You know, nobody else was interested. Virgin wasn't interested. RCA wasn't interested. And so we had, you know, and, and our label, I mean, you're making it sound far more impressive than it really is. Like we designed a logo, you know, you get the uh, the stuff manufactured and you put the logo on it. That That's basically how it works <laughs> for us. Um, but yeah, it was exciting. It's nice to see... You know, for those who still want a CD, it's nice to pick up a CD and see the physical thing and with the logo on it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So does that mean that you now own your music? Is that sort of, do you own the kind of um, rights to it or the publishing or is that still a, a vaguely mysterious world? Uh, <clears throat> no, we, we don't own anything of the first three albums. Right. Uh or the fourth album, but we own the publishing on the fourth album onward because we had a little um, indie label for a while called Current Records when we left Virgin. And a woman there who had worked in music publishing said, you know, Mark and Martha, you can actually own, run your own publishing. And we went, what? Because none of our lawyers or anybody had ever said that. And we said, what do you mean? And she said, you just join the, uh, the the songwriters, you know, uh, uh, songwriter society, the, the Performing Rights Society, which in Canada is SOCAN and in the UK it's PRS. But she said you basically, and we did, we were part of that as songwriters. But she said you can join as a publisher. You think of a name, and back then uh, SOCAN had to do a search, which probably took like three months or something around the world to make sure nobody else was using that name, then basically you were the publisher. And that coincided with uh, our song Black Stations, White Stations going to number two in the U.S. 
And we started getting royalty checks. We went, I can't believe this. We're getting these checks, you know, in the thousands of dollars just because this woman said you could be a publisher. And so from 1984 on, we've owned our own publishing and our own, you know, the, the subsequent albums like Modern Lullaby onward, you know, yes. we did our, so we own all that. And maybe when a better dawn rises, we'll somehow get those earlier ones back, but I'm not, you know, I'm not banking on it. No, it's, it's, it's a, I know, because I did an interview with it, um, Tony Basil, who did that song, Mickey, and she said, no, I never earned a penny from that. So it's like, oh, no, that's such a horrible story, isn't it? You know, it's like, you should yes, have there, And there are many, many horrible stories. And it well, took us 10, yeah, 10 years yeah. to make it. it yeah, 10 years before we paid, paid off, off our debt. And that was because we weren't with Virgin anymore, but they were putting, you know, Echo Beach was still getting lots of play. And over a decade, we actually, in their accounting, anyway, <coughs> uh, paid paid off. And we actually started getting royalties, you know, not, not enough to make us millionaires, but that was an, a source of income. But yeah, Tony Basil, I, I mean, there's just literally thousands of artists that would go, you know, I never made any money. But now but, now people aren't making money because of the streaming. Yeah, we have like true. nine million, thirty-nine million streams of Echo, Echo Beach, I think, and uh, you know we don't get big checks. <laughs> no, I would imagine so. I mean, do people? Do you still find that you're sort of attracting a new audience now? Because that's one thing I've noticed that kids in our days, everything was quite tribal, and you sort of stuck to you know a particular little genre of music and a particular time whereas now kids just kind of go from one decade you know one decade to another and one scene to another which I was thinking no you can't do that that's terrible you you can't sort of mix and match <laughs> you know we, you've got to be yeah. far too you've got to be far too uptight and stick to what you like and dislike other things just because that's what you do when you're young but have you found a younger audience is sort of discovering you as well now well, we can look up on Spotify, on our Spotify page or, or YouTube or any of those and look at the demographics. And, you know, as you would expect, our main demographic is 40 to 60 plus year olds because, you know, when our, we're in our 60s now. And so the people that were fans during the Echo Beach heyday would have been like 10 to 15 years younger than us. So that's where that sits. So, you know, the majority of the listeners and streamers are that age, but there's a, I'd say a fifth of the demographic is younger than that. And there's like maybe 10% that are even younger than that. And so you'll see on our YouTube comments, you know, somebody who's obviously not our age going, wow, this is really great. And, you know, sometimes we get the comment, I wish music was more like this than, you know, than what I'm listening to now, you know, funny stuff like yes, that. Yes, I know, they, so they love that, don't yeah, they? Yes. It's, it's, it's interesting, Echo Beach has 40 million listens, that's quite something, isn't it, really? I mean, there's another track that I, I saw, no, this is um, on the album, this is the Ice Age, Women Around the World at Work, which was kind of probably written in 1980, 81. What was, can you remember when you wrote that particular track, how that sort of came about? Well, you'd think that was Martha, but it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, was it? No, it was me. Um, I did write some songs. Yeah, no, you haven't. You've written a lot. Oh, dance part. <laughs> but Women Around the World at Work, um, 
came from a, another one of those summer hol- summer holiday jobs where I worked in another factory. It was like some sort of wire winding factory. And all the women were immigrant women. I think most of them were Portuguese. And it was owned and run by a guy who was like a total stereotype businessman, you know, like short and squat and smoked cigars as he walked down the the uh, the aisles checking up on all the women. And um, that's kind of where part of the idea of the song came from, just women around the world. And every they're all like working around the world. A lot of it... Uh, I had more edgy lyrics that had to do with the Pope and the Catholic Church as well, because, you know, it seems like most of the mainstream religions actually hate women. They pretend they don't, but it's all about keeping women enslaved, you know, by keeping yes. babies and don't get jobs and don't do this and now you can't get abortions. And and my mother was sort of like a second, third wave feminist in her own way. And I grew up surrounded by a lot of women that were very capable. And my mother being obviously the most influential example of that. And so all of that went into the into the um the song. And I, I, I wanted it to be a global thing where, you know, contrasting the way they work so hard, like even just raising children and growing food and that's a lot of work. And a lot of the time they're being exploited or hurt or killed while they're trying to do that by men you know and so it was also a statement against that sort of hyper masculinity as well yes well that's you know that's over 42 years two years ago you wrote that so it's um quite something isn't it yeah it's it's an interesting one I mean do you find now that you know when you got that period where you were both writing sort of more of a collaboratively is was that a more of an enjoyable experience than just writing sort of individually well it could be but it had it had its ups and downs (laughs) (laughs) we would sometimes yeah not agree on, on something we have two very I think we have two very different approaches yeah they work well most of the time but um, sometimes they don't. Yeah. And Mark can be very stubborn. <laughs> yeah, I can be a real jerk sometimes, you know, and uh, where I, I just get really stubborn about what, you know, what should happen and what shouldn't. And, you know. Uh, and was that, and was that, what was the case with Black Station, White Stations? Was that something that, again, came out of that period of, you know, segregation in sort of MTV and the, that uh-huh. particular world? That was um, inspired by a, uh, driving around in our van and uh, hearing a song, Brown Eyed Girl, by um, <clears throat> Van Morrison. Uh, yes. And uh, the, the the DJ said, told the story of um, the fact that it was actually, actually called Brown Skin Girl originally. That's the way he wrote it, but the record company insisted that he change the, the lyric to Brown Eyed Girl. Right. And that's a, yes. It was a very, very strange time because, um, I mean, Thriller came out around that time, and uh, there was a question of whether uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller would be played on white stations as well as the black stations. Like that, that format didn't exist in Canada, and I don't believe it ever existed in the UK or Europe. And like as Martha said, you know, she had the whole idea for the song. 
and hearing that story about Van Morrison on the radio. But the other uh, thing that came into that song is when we started touring more in the States, you know, we were hearing about black stations and white stations. You're going, what? Like, and it was all about radio formatting, you know, like if you wanted to listen to, 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 you know, Motown or R and B or funk, you listen to Mm. a black station and, you know, then the rest of it was over on the white. And as Martha said, like when Michael Jackson's thriller came out, they were still talking about whether he was going to transition over to white stations. And so being naive Canadians from the suburbs, we couldn't believe what we were hearing. Like I just, I, I thought, how could that, how could they even talk this way? And so, you know, you wrote those lyrics and then when this song came out, there was all this controversy in the States about whether we were like insulting the radio industry and, you know, what did we mean by this? Were we, you know, trying to make a statement and, um, it was more like we were just shocked by, like, perhaps in our naivety, we yes. were just shocked that such a system could exist. And, of course, you know, Michael Jackson became bigger than the universe, and that all became, you know, he kind of destroyed that whole barrier. But but the song went, to, as we said, went to number two on the dance chart. Yes. It's, it's big. But it was big. the song that beat it was um, One Dove's Cry by Prince. That's not, yeah, that's not so you know, there's a big difference between number one and number two. Fine. Well, you know, but if you're going to get beat by somebody, it might as well be Prince, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, absolutely. I always remember Ultravox, the famous story about Vienna being number two, because number one was that song, which was a novelty one, "Shut Up Your Face," and I remember sort of <laughs> that was it was like one of those. Oh, can you imagine it? It never yeah. got to number one. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of Ultravox, but I realised Vienna was kind of this epic song that got beaten by a novelty track instead, which was... Um, that would be disappointing, yeah. That was disappointing, <laughs> whereas When Doves Cry is going to be with us forever, really, isn't it? I know, and just on that point of, you know, that bizarre time, because I think Rolling Stone magazine was like, can we put Michael Jackson on the cover? And I think they put a cartoon picture of him on the cover instead, and it was like... <laughs> Oh my God! You can't believe you just did that. But um, there you go. That was the '80s. It was good, but there was some still weird stuff going on. And there's an interesting interview with David Bowie, talking to MTV. You know, asking them or the presenter why there was no black artist being played, and everybody looks a bit so you know uncomfortable. Yeah, froze, right? It was it was a good question. So there you go. But look, just last question, just last point. I mean, if you could have whispered something to like your 16 year old self starting out. Is there anything in particular you would have said, oh, actually, I would just do this, even if you, if that 16-year-old self might have ignored it? Is there anything, apart from the publishing, <laughs> um, is there anything else that you would You're have publishing. Yeah. The publishing, <laughs> just do the pub. Learn about the publishing. Um, yes. uh, what would you say? Yes. Uh, life isn't going to be as dull as everybody tells you it's going to be. No, that's <laughs> true. Um, no. Maybe it could be, it can be more exciting than, than everybody describes. I would have said, don't be so nervous. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, it runs in my family, anxiety. If, I, if I'd been 16, said, you know, you're going to, there's a famous quote by Mark Twain about, you know, and I, I never get it right, but and I paraphrase it, but it, essentially it's like, you know, 
all the things you worried about, most of them have never and never will happen. It was something to that effect, you know. So you yeah. wait, the, waste the, your time. Yeah, you about waste it. your time worrying about things that'll never happen. But. Yes, I had a strange thought just on that point because I was, um, as I get older, looking back sometimes on my life and remember those bits. But then I was wondering what I was worried at or worrying about during those past decades or those past moments because there's always something that I'm worried about, but. But, you know, but there's the events and there's what you're sort of talking to yourself about and you're thinking about day to day, which, you know, you don't photograph or you don't particularly write down. But, you know, I think, oh, yes, at the moment I'm sort of fretting about this, I'm fretting about that and I'm worried about this. But then next year it'll be something else or next week it'll be something else. And then I was looking back thinking, I wonder what other things I all the things I must have been worried about, which obviously are completely pointless because I can't remember what they were, but they would have been the underlying things to what I was, you know, what I can remember of those periods of the 80s, 90s, oh years, if that makes any sense at all, which possibly yeah, does. It does. <laughs> I see kids walking down our street because we have a middle school at the end of our street. And they go in clumps and they're, they're pals so, and friends. And then you'll see this one kid walk by by himself and his head's down looking at the ground. And I feel like shouting out the window, it gets us better. <laughs> It gets better. <laughs> it yeah. gets better. Well, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, it is kind of interesting what we what we're focusing on quite a lot of the time, underlying, you know, the the worry of the moment, and then thinking, I have no idea what I used to worry about during my past. But there must, I, yeah. you know, I didn't keep a worry, you know, a diary with all my worries in just to go. Oh, what was I worrying about during that period? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but but then then but then it made me realize I can't remember what I all those moments were which were then like you said is a kind of a bit of a waste of time because actually I didn't you know I can't remember them but you know but now I'm just worried about the, the guttering and the house so there you go so there's always something yeah. there. <laughs> well there's a lesson there somewhere I think there is there is a profound people lesson people worry about the big things too like climate change and well I hope so violence yeah. and... yes that's that's always there with us as well I know it's a rock and a hard place. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much for your time. This has been amazing. And I'm just very grateful. And if you want, I can always send you the link to this interview. And you can always... Please, yeah, please where, do. Wherever um, you do. Um, yeah, and, and I just want to add to that. Um, I would love to post it on Facebook, but they permanently disbarred us about a month and a half ago. So, like, we're on Twitter and... Um, what else are we on? Oh, Instagram. That's basically it. And but we will post. Maybe yes. if we get on Facebook, we will we will do it for sure. Uh, we don't know why they did it, and we couldn't get in touch with them. So we're still we. Maple Beach is off Spotify. Yeah, in America, in, in the states. states, but we don't know oh, what's it's going. It's, it's it's definitely on the UK. Oh, so with your Facebook page, it's the first of January, and then that's the end. Oh, did you try? Like, because I I think it's still up. Yes. Or is it going? You're all there from the from the first of Jan. You are there with sound surrounds eleven. Yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. That's there. where and we we went to post number twelve and it said uh, you've been disabled and you have thirty days to uh, make your case. We don't even know why, right? And every time we sent the form you're supposed to send, it said we're unable to process your request. Please try again later. And that went on for weeks and then. 
then we got a notice saying you're you're past the 30 days now you're permanently disabled so we can't even get on yeah. the facebook to find out to tell our fans that we're not on right, right. I, I don't know we've lost, like we're cut off from about 3500 people there but yes you uh, are you're, you're, it's quite annoying people can go to your website but um yeah, yeah. it's it's, it's um it's Orwellian to say the least, but it is. Oh well, I hope you get <laughs> well, I'll keep in touch via other means, but um I will send you a link and and then you can yeah, use it on your other social media platform sites. But yeah, uh, please do. I will. And look, thank you ever, ever so much and um, have a lovely evening and take care. And you too, David. We enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. See you later. Bye now. Bye bye. And that Bye. dead listener, I know I'm, I'm, I'm still, oh, look, I've hit. Oh, yeah, that, and that dead listener, I know it's so professional. I like those last little bits. It keeps it real, what it does to me anyway. A massive thank you to Martha Johnson and also Mark Gain from Martha and the Muffins for giving me the time for that interview. This has been The C86 Show, David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean, it's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.